Jimmy Bernat, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. This is fun. I'm so um, I'm so thrilled that you accepted um, to to join me tonight. Uh, you are a marine biologist, and I believe you're joining me from Washington D.C., right? Yep, that's right. I'm I'm working from home these days because the Natural History Museum is closed. But I would typically be working there, and uh, these days my work just looks like my little home office. Why don't you tell us what you do at the Natural Natural History Museum? Um, well, I just started this new job there in January, so I finished my PhD in December, and I uh, specialize on parasitic copepods, so these small crustaceans. There's many copepods, like about 14,000 species, and a lot of them are free-living. They eat like plankton, um, but maybe half of them, like five or 6,000, are parasites of just about everything in the ocean, and some of them are also parasites of uh, freshwater organisms like freshwater fish. Um, and so I'm trying to build basically a tree of life for all of these copepods to see how the different parasites have evolved. Uh, because one of the things we're learning is that the parasites aren't all related to each other. So if you can picture this like tree of life of your tree of copepods, there's a few branches that have parasites in them. So uh, they've evolved to be parasitic multiple times, which kind of gives us cool opportunities to learn about how that's happened. So here's a really cool thing. I'm a huge microscope nerd. People know me uh, on uh, Twitch and Twitter as a tiny world outside of this podcast format. And I see copepods all the time. I mean, they are everywhere. They're even considered a pest in our natural waters here, here in Ottawa. So I, but the thing I didn't know is that some of them are parasites. This is all new information to me. And this is why, again, I'm so excited to have you on the show because I want to know if some of the copepods that I'm seeing are also parasites or not. So how can you tell just, can you tell just by looking at them? Okay. Well, for a lot of them, so the, it, there's basically a gray area. So on one end of the parasitic spectrum, you have things that are like crazy looking parasites. You wouldn't even recognize most of these things as copepods. And actually in the 17 and 1800s, scientists didn't even know they were copepods. They thought they were worms or like one of these other groups of parasites, but there are actually these incredibly modified copepods. On the kind of other side of the spectrum, there are some parasitic copepods that look pretty much just like free-living copepods. They'll have some um, modifications. You'd have to put them under a microscope and look really carefully to see that, oh, some of their legs are a bit more modified into claws or some of their mouth parts are more modified for like sucking or scraping. Um, so it is, are you mostly looking at freshwater or saltwater? Yes, only, only freshwater. Yeah. So most of what you'll have seen is going to be pretty much all free living stuff, but, um, there are, there's at least one group of parasitic copepods that do just kind of swim around in the plankton until they find uh, a fish to live on. And um, they're, you wouldn't really know that they're parasitic because they actually live their whole life as free living copepods. And then only the females and only when they're about to like, they've molted into their adult stage and have mated with a male copepod, then they become parasitic and they go searching for a fish and they attach to the fish's gill and their arms kind of develop into these like giant bodybuilder arms that they use to hold on to that fish gill. And that's when they kind of start their parasitic existence. So you can find those in freshwater plankton. I found them uh, in lakes in upstate New York, 
uh, a few times and you wouldn't even know that they were going to become parasitic if you just saw them swimming around but that's sort of an unusual wow. case do, do they attack a very specific kind of fish they they live on um like centrarchids so this is a family of fish that includes like largemouth bass smallmouth bass rock bass and also like all the sunfish and bluegills um, and it seems like in my limited experience that rock bass are their preferred hosts. And I don't know if you're, if, if those go as far North as you, but, yes. um, like when I've looked at largemouth bass or sunfish, I might find like one of these copepods every two fish that I look at. And then when I look at rock bass, each one might have like 10. And so it does seem like they prefer rock bass potentially. So, you know, what's curious, I'm also a fisherman. So um, I, I'm born and raised in a family that fishes up north, right? That's where I'm from. And uh, rock bass, what's curious about them is that nobody will eat them up north. Hmm. And I wonder if it's because they know, they just knew that they, they were infected or what. I mean, I don't know. So I guess the next question would be, if there are parasitic copepods in rock bass, are they still edible? Yeah, totally. And so, and, okay. and these ones, they only live on the gills of the rock bass. And so if you're doing any sort of like cleaning of the fish and removing the gills, you'll have removed these. These ones are also really pretty small. They're maybe less than five millimeters long. So, you know, if you had a small rock bass and you were eating it whole, you wouldn't even like know one of these tiny things was attached to its gills. Um, yeah. And with most fish parasites in general, if you're cleaning the fish, like if you're removing basically like the internal organs and the gills, that's probably where like 90% of the parasites would be anyway. Um, and if you're cooking the fish, there's no concern. Uh, like none of the parasites will survive cooking. Okay. So, so at least now you've made me super curi curious because I am planning a trip up north after my second vaccination. And uh, I'm definitely taking my microscope, which will be the first time I get to look at life back home with a microscope. And I'm definitely going to keep a rock bass and look yeah. at its gills because yep. now I'm super stoked. Like, what if I do find it like my first real parasitic copepod? That would be so exciting. It would be cool. You know? Yeah. So it takes a little work to find them. I mean, like I will usually dissect a fish and um, so like kill the fish and then like remove the gills with a pair of scissors, like small scissors. And then I'll put each like gill filament in a little dish of water at like just lake water. And then I will like look on the sides of the gill filament to see these little things. Um, so it does take like a little bit of effort to find them. Uh, if the fish is really heavily infected, you could just like pull open that like operculum and look in on the gills. And sometimes you will see like lots of little ones, but typically if there's just like, you know, between one and 10 or 20, you'd have to like look at the gills themselves under a microscope to see them, which is what I normally do when I'm looking for these parasites. Um, I just want to take a quick pause with copepods. I'm really curious to know what other kind of parasites would I find on a rock bass? Yeah, good question. Um, well, there's probably some tapeworms that you could find in their intestine. Um, and then there's lots of different groups of uh, parasitic flatworms that belong to this group called the trematodes and they can be living almost anywhere in the body of the rock bass um they have little larval stages that will kind of penetrate the body of the fish 
and hang out there. And they're basically hoping for the fish to be eaten either by a larger fish or by a bird, depending on the parasite. And then that is their like final host where they'll develop into an adult in that, in that uh, bird, uh, for instance. So there's a big group, there's a whole group of trematodes that do that. And so you could find them in like the liver of the rock bass. You, there might be like little cysts in it. And that would be these little trematodes. They're, to be honest, they're not much to see at that stage. Like if you put it under a microscope, you'll be like, oh, it's a liver with like lots of little white or yellow spots in it. Um, it's like the adult trematodes that are actually kind of interesting looking. But as a quick note, I once dissected a sunfish, like a small bluegill, and looked perfectly healthy. You know, I caught it on a small fly rod, put up a fight. It was in very good shape. And when I opened it up, its entire liver was like, almost its entire liver was these little larval stages called metacercaria. Like, it probably only had like one third of its liver left because it had wow. so many of these parasites in it. And yet it was like swimming around in that pond, like totally seeming totally healthy, which just shows you, I guess, how um, kind of like strong and robust fish can be. Cause you would imagine like, I wouldn't be doing very well if I only had a third of my liver left, you know? Yeah. That's really, really, really cool. And I guess, you know, it would explain to you like, when we catch fish, we always look for these like white, I think it's white spots or, or dark mm -hmm. spots. And there's certain spots that you, you know, you know, okay, this is a fish that we probably shouldn't eat or we should put back into the water or, you know. Yeah, I think, I think there's common ones called like white grub and black grub. And I think both of those are, are the trematodes that are found in some freshwater fish. Um, and even if they do have that, if, again, if you cook it, they're, they're harmless to you. Okay. So back to the copepods. Um, are there more, so I guess there are more parasitic copepods in the oceans then, because it's just a more dangerous body of water. Uh, everything's trying to kill you out in the ocean anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it seems it, it is the case that, um, you know, well, copepods evolved in salt water, like the very first copepods lived in the marine environment. And so of the like 14,000 species of copepods, um, only about like, I think like 3000 live in freshwater. And so the, the vast majority of all copepods, free living and parasitic are found in, in salt water. Um, and then I think there's just a lot more potential hosts in the ocean um, because copepods live on so many different groups of animals, the, the parasitic ones anyway. Um, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting because there's copepods that live on fish and sharks and whales. And then there's also copepods that live on our parasites of corals and sea anemones and starfish and marine worms so like basically every major group of animals that lives in the ocean has its own parasitic copepods on it as though the corals didn't have enough to deal with you know yeah. <laughs> right. pollution and all that stuff um how does that work how does the uh, relationship or the 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 parasitic thing happen with the corals yeah, so there's a bunch of copepods that live on the surface of corals. Um, and it's not always clear if some if they're all parasites or not. So 
because again, these are like what you mentioned before, what you asked about, like, how can you tell if they're parasites? These are ones that are kind of in that gray area. So it's like, are they just hiding on the corals? Is that just a good place to be like walking around and grazing on algae or hiding from predators? Or are they harming the corals and feeding on the corals? Um, it seems like at least a, a number of them are feeding on the corals. It's thought that they kind of eat the coral mucus. Um, and so if a coral, because like corals will cover, the polyps will produce mucus to kind of cover themselves. Okay, because I, um, I did not know, by the way. I had no idea. You were like, coral mucus? And I was like, wait, wait <laughs> hold on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, but you've explained it. So the coral is covered in, in mucus. Yep, the polyps, like the tiny little things that are kind of making that skeleton will have mucus on their right. surface. And you know, if there's just a few of these copepods eating some of that mucus, it's probably not a big deal. But sometimes like a single coral that's like, you know, um, like the size of a, a football, for instance, could have like a few hundred of these copepods living on that. And then if they're eating a lot of this coral's mucus, the coral's going to have to try to produce more of that. It could also be more likely to get an infection or something. Um so that would qualify them as parasites since they're call causing some harm to their host. That's just amazing. I, and, and the whole time I'm, I'm wondering, I'm like, how does he know this? Like, how do you, how do you study where these uh, parasitic copepods are found? Are you just going through all the literature? Are you taking your own samples? Um, is there literature spanning all the, the oceans, like the Indian ocean and stuff like that? Like, how do you get all this information? Yeah, so I do collect copepods um, on my own doing field work, but most of what I've learned, I've learned by reading, um, yeah, scientific literature. There's a, a great book that was written, like a, two books that were written by um, Jeff Boxhall, and one of them he co-wrote with this guy, uh, another Professor Ronnie Hoyes. Both of these guys work at the London Natural History Museum and kind of like the leading experts on copepods. And uh, one of the books in particular that, that Jeff wrote alone is called Copepod Diversity. And it basically goes through like every family of copepods. And I think there's something like 150 or 200 families of copepods. And he, he tells you a bit about them and a bit about their biology. And so for all of those ones that are parasites, it will say like, oh, these ones live on, you know, starfish. Or these ones are only known from starfish in the Indian Ocean. Or these ones are only known from worms off the coast of England or whatever. Um, and so it takes a long, you know, there's, there's so many, again, like 6,000 species of parasitic copepods. So I still don't know most of them, but over the last, you know, seven years or so, I've kind of become acquainted with at least the most common ones or some of these like really interesting groups that I've just kind of targeted to learn more about. What's the, uh, so far, what's the coolest one you've found? Ah, oh, good question. Well, I, I will say that most people that study parasitic copepods study the ones that live on fish because fish are relatively easy to catch. People tend to care about fish. Fishermen are going out there catching them. And the copepods are generally easier to find on fish because they really live on either the scales, like on the body surface or on the gills. And so you can kind of look in those places on any fish and you might find very different looking copepods there, but they're, they're found in those same areas. 
Whereas the ones that live on marine invertebrates can be like anywhere. And a lot less people are studying these other marine invertebrates. And even if you are finding them, the copepods are a lot harder to find because they might live, for instance, in the esophagus of a sea urchin. So you could spend a few days, like hours, looking on the surface of a sea urchin and not find very much because turns out the copepods that are living on it tend to be in the esophagus. Um, or yeah some of them are live internally inside of worms and so unless you're like dissecting all of these marine worms and looking inside of them you wouldn't know that there was a copepod there um coupled with the fact that they, some of them look so weird you wouldn't even know they were a copepod unless you had seen one before somebody had told you about it um but in terms of the what was the question like what's the weirdest the one coolest, i found or the most interesting or the weirdest whatever wh whichever one you you just can't stop thinking about um so i spent a while looking for these ones that live inside of uh tunicates or like sea squirts um so these are kind of uh relatively common like marine invertebrates they grow on docks and stuff they kind of like encrust on there and there's a whole group of about like 400 species of parasitic copepods that lives inside of these sea squirts um and they're pretty cool because they run that gamut just within this group of 400 species from looking pretty much like a free living copepod to looking like a very modified parasite and the parasitic ones i think look really cute they look kind of like um they've almost evolved into like a little bit of a caterpillar shape or like a tardigrade type shape. So they have, in, instead of looking like a free living copepod, they kind of have these like chubby bodies with like little legs, kind of like a tardigrade type shape. And so th those are pretty cute when you find them like walking around and like, Eureka, I found one. <laughs> what's their name? Like what's their species name? Um. So the, the main ones that I'm thinking of, like the biggest group of them uh, belong to a family called the Nododelphidae. Um, I could put that maybe into the chat or something. Uh, and there's a few other groups of like related families that all live in tunicates, yeah, in these sea squirts. And some of them are maybe like commensals, just kind of like hanging out in there because sea squirts like filter water and then they have... Um, basically like gills inside their body that they use to collect food. And some of these copepods hang out in there and maybe they're just like stealing a little bit of the food, but some of them are clearly doing like some damage to the sea squirt too. So they're the always okay, weird. That is, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm going to Google that afterwards. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to find um, pictures of a lot of these things, which is actually why um, a part of my postdoc and kind of continuing after that, a part of my research program is going to be just to try to get uh good photographs of these copepods because um you know most people aren't looking for these things and so a lot of them we have drawings of like scientists will do uh scientific illustrations these like uh pen and ink drawings when they find them and describe new species but we don't necessarily like uh, that's not very available to a person if they just do like a google image search to see what these things look like um, although there are a few biologists now that are really good photographers that go out and take some pictures of them. So you might find a few, but, you know, considering there's like 400 species of these things, you might find like yeah. you know, five color photographs of them or something. Yeah. And that, that was one of my next questions actually, which is, um, how big is the scientific community for, I mean, 
for parasites alone, it, it must be a lot, a lot lar larger, but for parasitic copepods, I mean, there mustn't be that many specialists in the world. Yeah, there aren't. Um, and it's difficult to say for sure, like, um, cause I, I don't know, you know, I know a few like close colleagues that I work with that work on parasitic copepods. What I can say is there is a scientific society called the world association of copepodologists. So these are just like people that study copepods and that I'm a part of. And I think we have about like 300 members. And so there's about, you know, around 300, probably a bit more there's cause there's probably a few other scientists that like aren't part of our society. Um, so 300 or so people, maybe a little bit more around the world that work on copepods. And then of those, you know, that includes people that work on freshwater, free living copepods, you know, marine planktonic copepods, and also the parasitic copepods. Um, and so I don't, I, I, I would just say like guessing maybe roughly half or a third work on the parasitic ones. So maybe that's around like a hundred people. Um, yeah, it's pretty specialized. I mean, all, yeah. all of the scientists that I talk to have a very, very precise specialty. That's what doing a PhD is all about and, and doing research. But I'm always curious to see like how big is your community and all that stuff. Um, I, it, it's also interesting because I recently interviewed David Johns. I don't know if you know him, but he's the uh, head of the Continuous Plankton Recorder uh, Survey yeah, okay. out in the UK. And I recently spoke with him and, uh, you know, they they are studying a very specific I think it's a copepod as well as an indicator of climate change because mm, the mm -hmm. cod eat them and mm -hmm. the, the more they move, the more the cod moves. Mm. Um, so I'm curious to see if any of the parasitic copepods that you study, if you are noticing, you know, maybe a change due to environment or if their placements are changing over time, things like that. Yeah. So the parasites will generally track their hosts. Um, and so, yeah, um, if a host dies off for any reason, um, like there was, I think, a disease that went around maybe a, a decade or two ago that killed off a lot of sea urchins in the Caribbean. Um, that also it means that maybe if they had these parasitic copepods on them, they may have also reduced their population a lot or potentially even like died off completely. Um, but I don't know much about parasitic copepods response to climate change. I just don't think many people have looked at that. Um, some people have looked at uh, like parasitic copepods as moving around with fish that are like invasive species or have gotten transported somewhere else, maybe through like the Suez Canal or something like that. And they do bring their parasitic copepods with them. And then sometimes the copepods do hop on to native fish. So they'll like switch, you know, they might not strictly stay on the host that carried them into this new area. They might start parasitizing uh, native fish when they were brought in on a non-native host. That's really interesting too, right? I mean, the, the the fact that they're, you know, if they had like a, like you said, you know, they like uh, rock bass in freshwater. What if like, I don't know, with climate change or, or pollution or disease kills off all the rock bass, would they just adapt to perhaps liking, you know, smallmouth bass? Uh, that's really curious too. Right. Yeah. And so there's this kind of interesting um, balancing act that 
parasites do, or it's, I guess, not a balancing act, but a trade-off between being a um, generalist, so being able to like live on lots of different host species, or being a specialist and being like very acutely adapted to live on maybe just a single host species or a group of very closely related host species. And so I'm always surprised when we see uh, parasites that are host specific, but I would say most parasites are pretty host specific. Um, and that is always kind of surprising to me because you'd think, oh, well, if your host starts going extinct or if their population just gets smaller, you'd think it would always be a benefit to be kind of more of a generalist. But I guess something is going on that there is like evolutionary pressure for these, uh, for a lot of parasites to evolve to be more specific for a smaller group of closely related hosts. So do most parasitic copepods, do they, you know, because you said that, that, that there is one kind of copepod that kind of becomes a parasite later in life, mm -hmm. but the, the, but the mass majority, majority of them are parasites right from the start, right? I mean, they start feeding on a host as in the, as, as they become adults, I guess. Yeah. So almost all of them in, in like 99% of cases, um, they have copepods. So all copepods have larval stages called like a nauplius larva. This is just like the same, very similar to what a barnacle um, larva looks like. It's, so it's this little like swimming, almost like roundish uh, baby crab sort of looking thing. They're very tiny, um, smaller than like a poppy seed with uh, usually I think six legs. So they're, those are swimming around. Free-living copepods, parasitic copepods, they all have these. But in the parasitic copepods, that larval stage swims around and looks for a host. In most cases, it actually molts into another larval stage called the copepodid. But now we're getting kind of niche into <laughs> copepod development. So what I'm trying to say is copepods produce, all of them have larval stages. In the parasitic copepods, the larval stages are the things that search out the hosts typically. And then they will attach to a host and they will go through a variety of molts and become an adult. Um, the group that I talked about earlier on the rock bass is kind of unique in that they, even as an adult, are living out in the freshwater plankton. And then after the females have mated with a male, then they swim and find a host as an adult, which is unusual. Usually as a lot parasitic copepods find a host as a larval stage and then kind of molt into these adult stages. So it's interesting because some of really modified parasitic copepods that look more like worms or like have no legs left, they can't even swim anymore. They can get to a host because their larval stages are still like the dispersal stage that swims around and looks for a host. How do they mate? If they're if they're um, you know feeding on a host, do they leave to mate and come back? They pretty much always mate on their host, um, and like most parasites, they invest really heavily into reproduction because it's really hard to find a host. But if you're a parasite, once you've found one, it's like jackpot because if you're like one of these copepods living on rock bass gills, your your host is like a thousand times or I don't know, 10,000 times bigger than you and you're eating that thing, right? You have all the food you could ever want for your whole life. So as a parasite, you can 
you can grow bigger. Um, people tend to think of parasites as being small things, but if you compare them to their free living relatives, parasites are almost always bigger because they can find a host and then they can, they have all the nutrition they could ever need. They produce way more babies because their babies are going to have trouble finding a host. So they know they need to produce lots and lots of eggs and they invest very heavily into their babies. So they give them a lot of yolk in their eggs. And so almost all of the parasitic copepods their larval stages don't eat anything. They just survive off of yolk stores that their mother gave them while they're swimming around and looking for a host. Wow. I never thought I'd be so invested in parasitic copepods, but now I'm <laughs> super into this. Um, yeah. I'm curious to know, because I also I want to take, take some time to speak about worms and all that stuff. I want to know why? Why did you go into parasitic copepods? It's so um, it's so bizarre and yet so cool. Yeah. Um, so I started working on parasites when I was an undergraduate at the University of Connecticut. Um, and I really just wanted to try research. You know, research always just kind of sounded like this nebulous thing to me. I didn't really know what it was, but I knew I really liked biology and so I was thinking about like, how can I make a career out of this? Oh, well, there's this thing I've heard about called research. Let me try working in a lab and seeing what that's about. And so I talked to a few professors. I basically went on their websites and read about what they do. And I found like three or four that I thought their work sounded interesting and that I'd be willing to try. And I talked with them and the person who I found most interesting, it was this professor uh, Dr. Janine Kyra, who studies tapeworms in sharks and stingrays. And I kind of thought, oh, sharks and stingrays, that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll get to, I, I like fishing. I thought maybe I'll get to go fishing in like a tropical island or something. Very naive of me as like a 19 year old. Um, and I thought tapeworms, that's kind of weird, but I knew I wanted to work on an animal, you know, and something that I can kind of look at and see even with a microscope, not like a single celled, you know, bacteria or something. Um, and Dr. Kyra was so like passionate and excited and telling me about these like cool surveys they were doing to figure out why tapeworms are so host specific and how sometimes tapeworms can help you identify um, different species. Because actually the, the tapeworms are so host specific. Sometimes they'll live in two sharks that look identical but the tapeworms will look very different. And so you can like dissect the shark and be like, oh, this must be, this might be different from the last one because even though the sharks look identical, their parasites look pretty different. And then if you compare the DNA of the, the sharks, you're like, oh, actually, even though these sharks look the same, they're genetically different. And somehow like the tapeworms are sort of showing us that because the tapeworms have changed their size and shape more than the sharks have. So there's this whole field of like using parasites as um, like biological tags or biological indicators because they can tell you things about their hosts that you might not have known otherwise. So I started learning about this stuff. I started um, working with, with Janine Kyra and describing a few new species of tapeworms. And so I found like, and basically falling in love with looking at tapeworms under a microscope. Um, there's also something like very captivating about um, uh, kind of like the sample preparation. So to look at these things under a microscope, you do this like six hour process of taking a tapeworm that's been like picked out of a shark intestine, you put it in a Petri dish, 
it's kind of coiled up so you can't actually see what's inside it very well. So you actually flatten it with tiny little glass chips. So think about like having a curled up shoelace and you want to make that shoelace perfectly flat so you can see inside of the shoelace at all the parts and the organs and stuff that would help you identify this tapeworm. So you go through this like painstaking process of putting like tiny, picking up tiny little pieces of glass chips with forceps like tweezers and putting them onto one end of the tapeworm and then very carefully stretching the tapeworm out and dropping other little pieces of glass on it and then adding different chemicals so it stays laid out in this perfect position. And then you put that on a microscope slide and you stain it to make the colors just right. And it's really this like this really cool process. And if you do it well, you're like this this slide that I made of a tapeworm mounted in tree sap like that's actually what we mount them in it's called canada balsam um that thing will last forever like those those specimens that i've put in museums around the world of these new tapeworm species will probably live you know like outlive anything else i do in this world like assuming the museums don't get like you know, burn completely burned down or like barring some sort of like catastrophic asteroid impact, you know, a hundred years two, 300 years from now, you'll be able to go back and like see those slides that I made of these tapeworms preserved essentially in like amber, right? In tree sap. And a hundred years from now, a scientist could look at that and be like, oh, Jim, who, who did, who mounted this? This looks perfect. They stained it just right. They positioned it just right. Oh, Bernard, huh? I wonder who that is, was. <laughs> <laughs> So you got, you kind of got hooked to the process. Yeah. And, and then I started, you know, when you study parasites, you start seeing the world in a really interesting way. Cause instead of seeing, you know, I always loved plants and animals, but now I started to see them not just as that animal on its own, but about like each animal becomes an ecosystem for all of the other things that live on it. And I think that is like an endlessly interesting way to look at the world. It's like those Russian stacking dolls, right? So if you see a shark swim by, I don't just think, oh, cool shark. Now I'm like, oh, there's probably, there might be copepods living on its skin. Oh, I wonder if it has tapeworms in its intestine. Oh, I wonder if it has isopods in its nostrils. Oh, like, you know, because it turns <laughs> out there's more than 2000 species of parasites that live on sharks. And so every animal, you know, and the same thing goes with a deer walking down, you know, walking through the woods. It could have fleas and ticks and tapeworms and all sorts of things living in and on it. And so you start seeing the world as like this kaleidoscope or like multi-layered place where every object, every creature in it is a habitat for smaller things that are living in and on it. And I think that just becomes like a really cool way of looking at the world. Um, if you study, you know, if you study uh, a mammal, for instance, or study any organism, part of the time you're going to spend studying that organism's environment, right? Because that's like so important for how organisms work. But when you study a parasite, that parasites environment is a whole other organism that you also get to study. So like studying parasites is super cool. And I became pretty hooked on that. That makes a lot of sense. It's really <laughs> curious too, because I, you know, like I said, I look at the world through the microscope and I just actually finished writing an article for the conservation area where I usually go get my sample. They asked me to write an article for their blog. And I was writing in there and saying how 
you know, looking at this little, this little microscopic, I put all my samples in a Petri dish. I'm not like you. I'm way too impatient. I put it in a Petri dish. I put it under the scope. And what I notice is that, like you said, it's a whole other ecosystem. You see creatures being born. You see creatures eating each other. Mm -hmm. You see scavenger ciliates eating, you know, whatever's left of a molt. You see all this beautiful stuff and you forget about yourself. You forget about your ego. You forget about all the human things happening outside of whatever, wherever you are, your desk, your living room, your lab. And it is, I mean, I can see the appeal. I can definitely see the appeal in, like you said, studying not just the natural world, but studying parasites in particular, because you're, like you said, you're, you're accidentally learning about other creatures. And if you strike me as somebody who's extremely curious, and so that yeah. must satisfy you very much. Yeah. And it, well, I love what you were just saying about the microscopic world, because it's almost like this kind of like fractal experience, right? Where like every, every layer that you look at, there's more detail there than maybe you expected at first. Um, and you can kind of just keep going down deeper and deeper into that. You could start like, you know, maybe looking at insects, which I always loved doing as a kid. And you're like, oh, there's these cool bugs. I could flip over a rock and find these things. Um, and then you find out like, oh, well, if I take a magnifying glass to that, there's even smaller things that I wasn't seeing. Oh, if I take that into a microscope, there's even these other things there. And yeah, I mean, I love what you were saying about like looking at pond water or something like people watch these, uh, you know, documentaries of like the African savanna. And I'm like that, that level and of of drama is playing out around us all the time at these like smaller scales but i mean but it's it's just as dramatic or even more dramatic i think because like you know you might be watching these like copepods and ostracods eating each other and then like a dragonfly nymph will come out of nowhere and that's like a tyrannosaurus rex to these like small things and then like a fish could come by and that's like you know we don't even have the scale variation of that in the vertebrate world that would be like you know a whale coming up and eating something that it's like and that just goes so many levels up and down in the microscopic world it's it's super cool and and the yeah. last thing i'll say is most of animal diversity is like less than five millimeters long you know if you were to count up like all the animal species in the world and put them on a line by their size, like more than half of animal species are these small things. So we're just biased as humans because we're on like the big end of the spectrum. But, you know, the vast majority of animal life and life on this planet is small things that are small to us, things that we really need a, a microscope to look at. I think the advent of things like Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, social media in general, and I think the the more, you know, when I started on Twitch last year, there were only, I think, three of us um, using microscopes. Now, I think there's wow. easily probably 100 uh, mm. people streaming live with their, their microscopes. And and as, when, when you were talking about the ostracods and the copepods, just right here with the example, I, I just wanted to, to tell you that um, during a Twitch stream at one point, uh, we saw a copepod eat a tardigrade, and it was it was just <laughs> it was the biggest dramatic moment that I remember from Twitch. Literally, we were looking at a tardigrade, and we we're like, I was explaining to people, you know, my audience, what what it was, and then here comes a copepod, and it just <laughs> stood there. It hovered, it ate it, and it went off. And we were like, 
yeah. what just happened. <laughs> yeah, it was and you know, and dramatic. that could be, and that could be playing out like a million times over in a small yeah. pond that you like, or like a you know a cow pond that you walk past every day or something. You know, it's really <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Um, so I also have pets. Uh, I have a pet planaria in okay. jars because they're cool looking and because they keep me company with my snails. And essentially, I created pond jars. So is a planaria also a parasite? Good question. They, they're they flatworms, but they are free living flat, flatworms. Um, and they are either like predators or maybe detritivores. Um, so there are parasitic flatworms that are kind of generally related to them. So planarians are in this group, platyhelminths just means flatworms. And that's also like tapeworms and trematodes and some of the other parasites I was talking about are part of that same phylum of flatworms. But planarians are really cool. We we look at them in the parasitology lab as one of our first labs, even though they're not parasites, but they're cool. You know, it's hard to find live parasites that you could show in a parasitology lab. Typically, we look at like preserved, prepared slides, like kind of what I was talking about before. But planarians are a good example of like a free living platyhelminth that we could look at. And they're really cool to watch. Um, yeah crawl around and if you find if you have, can get like tube effects worms like what do you feed your planarians do you nothing. feed them anything or nothing like... nothing i i feed my creatures nothing and i have a whole bunch of like copepods and planarians and, and i've literally i've had them since last may okay so go to a fish food store like a, an, a pet shop and see if they have like dried tube effects worms or blood worms like people will feed these things to their fish and sprinkle some of them into a petri dish with water in it and put the planarians in there because it will blow your mind they have a their mouth is on like the middle bot the bottom middle half of their body like not up near the eyeballs where you would expect a mouth to be and their mouth is like you know in the alien movies how they have like a little mouth that comes out of their yes. mouth their mouth is like that, but it's like half the size of their body. And so they will go up to one of the, like a planarian will crawl up to one of these like dried blood worms or, uh, or what do you call it? Like tubifex worms, these like very small little worms that people feed their fish. And it will extrude this whole thing that is like an elephant trunk and it will stick that into that organism like and start eating it with this like crazy avertible mouth thing that comes out of the bottom of its body yeah it's oh my really God. Cool. okay yeah i have to, <laughs> have to see this and stream you it so you should stream it because it's really I, I, cool yeah i totally should um okay and and the reason i was asking about the planaria is because there are all sorts of worms i know that you have uh you know familiarity with uh, tapeworms nematodes I, i've seen i see a ton of nematodes everywhere mm -hmm. um you also did something a little crazy where you um <laughs> The 50 hookworms thing? Do you mm -hmm. want to uh, just tell my audience about this? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, okay, so well, remind me to mention that because I, I do want to explain maybe one quick transition that I, I, I sort of left sure. off because you asked me like how I got to copepods and I sort of explained how I got to tapeworms or parasites in general. And then I just wanted to quickly explain like how I made this jump it. to copepods and you know, how I'm just a person that I guess is like captivated by parasites. But um, I started getting really interested in this idea 
kind of what you asked in the beginning of like, how does a parasite evolve in the first place? Like how does something become a parasite and how can we tell? And I was working on tapeworms at the time and, and I started thinking, okay, like how did the first tapeworm come about? And it kind of, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy to think. Cause probably what happened was there was some flatworm kind of like a planarian crawling around on the bottom of the ocean, maybe 400 million years ago. And some ancient like prehistoric fish ate that thing. And it got inside of the, you know, it's inside of the fish and it somehow was a mutant that was like, oh, I can survive here. And like, that's probably how tapeworms came about, right? They were a flatworm that like evolved to live in a fish's digestive tract. So I was like, how could we figure out how that happens? And in tapeworms, like we can't really figure, we'll probably never know for sure how that happened because it happened like 400 million years ago. Tapeworms don't fossilize very well. So we can't really like go, anything short of a time machine, we probably won't know for sure how that happened. But so then I started thinking like, okay, what groups of parasites could we figure out how these transitions occur? And I'm interested in like the microscopic world, right? So I also wanted a group of parasites that just like looked really interesting. And I was taking a college course on invertebrate zoology that Dr. Kyra also taught. And we got to the section on copepods and I was like, what? There's all these crazy parasitic copepods that don't even look like copepods. And then I found out, oh, copepods have evolved to be parasitic multiple times. And some of them are probably like in the act of becoming parasitic. Like some of those ones that are maybe like grazing on the corals and they're, you're like, are they parasites or are they not? Well, if we came back in like 30 million years, maybe then they will be like, living inside of the coral polyp as an obvious parasite. Um, and so I found copepods to be like this, these cool looking animals that would be a great system for trying to figure out like, how does something transition from like a free living organism to a parasite? And that's what kind of got me hooked on copepods. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense, which is, which is interesting because it was something I was going to ask you earlier. And I thought, well, he he doesn't know the answer to that. Don't ask that question. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was, was going to say, where did they come from? But no, I'm glad that you explained that. Yeah. Um, okay, so okay. so now tell us about the the fifteen the hookworms. Hookworms. We've got fifteen minutes left, and you got to tell okay. me, you got to tell that story too. Yeah. Okay. So I'm at GW. I'm teaching. I'm TAing parasitology. Um, there's a professor there that I teach with, who's like the world one of the world experts on hookworm. Hookworm are parasitic nematodes that infect all sorts of different vertebrates. Um, there's ones that live in dogs and cats, wild animals, like uh, yeah, you know, jaguars probably have their own hookworms, and so do a bunch of mammals. And some of them, uh, dogs get them. We give heart guard is one of the things that helps like protect against dog hookworms. Um, and humans can get hookworm. There's a few species that, that live in humans, uh, not in Canada because they can't survive freezing. So in cold areas, you don't really have hookworm, but in tropical areas and even in the Southern US, you, uh, they do, uh, they're, they're found there. And they're a big problem, particularly in, um, parts of the world that don't have indoor plumbing because these worms get, uh, their eggs get pooped out and they live in the dirt for a while eating bacteria actually. So they're kind of like free living early on, but 
they eventually develop into a stage that looks for a host and like buries into the skin of its host. And then they make their way to the intestine and they live there. So they're pretty problematic and there's good drugs to treat people. So if you got infected with them in the US, you can take like one pill and be fine. But the problem is when in areas where there's not good sanitation, like where people are um, pooping in outdoor latrines, basically these worms get out into the soil. Now, anytime a person walks through that part of the field or something, these larval hookworms get into their skin and they can be a big problem if you have like thousands, hundreds or thousands of them, especially if you're a little kid or a pregnant woman or, or older. So people at GW are trying to develop a vaccine against these hookworms and they, they think they have a potential vaccine candidate. So how can you tell if a vaccine works? One of the ways is to do like a challenge study, which is like to give somebody the vaccine and then infect them in this case with hookworm and see if they get like less worms if they've gotten the vaccine. And so I volunteered to be part of this study because I teach parasitology labs. And I was like, this will be a good story for the rest of my life. If I'm ever teaching a parasitology class and the parts that we talk about hookworm, I'm like, this would be a good way to get people's attention. And I also just thought it would be interesting to experience having hookworm and seeing how a clinical study like this works with an experimental vaccine. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe this could help people, uh, you know, around the world that can maybe get, if the vaccine works or if this helps us develop a vaccine that could help hundreds of millions of people that get hookworm. So I signed up for this trial. They also paid me, I will say, like every visit, every time like, I had to go in about every two weeks to either give them a blood sample or to get one of the vaccine doses. It had three vaccine doses. So unlike a lot of the COVID ones that are like one or two dose, this was a three dose vaccine. Um, and one of the times when I came in, they gave me 50 hookworms. And I was saying that these hookworm like penetrate your skin. So they did just like pipette 50 micros microscopic worms. At this point, they're really small onto a piece of like gauze and just like put it on my arm and basically put a piece of tape over that. I mean, it was like fancy, like surgical tape or something, but you could have used a piece of duct tape probably. And I just sat there for an hour and within like five minutes, I'm like, oh my gosh, my arm's getting really tingly feeling and then itchy. And that's like literally the worms like producing enzymes that, that let them like slip in between my skin cells and like get into my body. Um, and then for, I don't remember exactly how long it was, six months, eight months, I just had these worms um, and I had to, I would give blood samples. Um, one of the reasons I was totally fine doing this study, one, I knew the biology of the worms. Like I knew they don't really cause that much harm unless you have like hundreds or thousands of them and I only got 50. Um, two, if they were monitoring my blood level, if I got like anemic, that's what can happen if you have like thousands of worms. Um, they would have just given me this pill at any point and cured me of hookworm. So there's like very little risk. Uh, and yeah, and I would give them stool samples like every couple of weeks. So basically a sample of my poop because they can check the poop for eggs and that will tell them how many hookworm I've gotten, I have that are like sexually reproducing in me. Um, so I did that and I had the hookworm um, and I eventually did have, 
I was like, they were producing eggs because they detected eggs in my stool samples, which means either I got the placebo or the vaccine wasn't like a hundred percent effective. Um, and then the trial kind of came to an end. They gave me three doses of the, um, like pill three days in a row to like kill off all the hookworm. Then they did a final like stool sample, like a month later to make sure I didn't have any eggs at that point. So I was totally cured. The only downside was like the first month of the study, the, the spot in my arm that the hookworms penetrated was like itchy, like really, really itchy, like, like poison ivy level, maybe even a little worse for like two or three weeks. Um, but besides that, like once the worms were in my intestine, apparently, you know, I never would have known they were there. I couldn't feel anything. Never. There's no pain. And I actually did not have any seasonal allergies that spring, which was interesting. I normally have some like, you know, scratchy throat in the springtime when plants are producing a lot of pollen. And it turns out that these hookworm, they do, hookworms do secrete compounds to keep your immune system from killing them and so they might produce compounds that kind of like lower you know tell our immune system to chill out a little bit and that might help with people's allergies potentially or especially there's some studies going on to see if people that have like serious digestive tract issues like crohn's disease or inflammatory bowel syndrome um potentially giving them hookworm or compounds derived from hookworm could could help now i'm not telling it please nobody go get hookworm. It's not like <laughs> yeah, a good, good idea to do <laughs> non-controlled. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's super interesting. A, that, that you did that. I mean, congrats on doing that. I think that's a really, <laughs> it, it's a cool thing. I mean, it's a cool thing. And I think that you, you know, like you said, you've got yourself a great story, um, but also that you got to actually experience being, you know, kind of their host uh, on purpose, <laughs> which is very unique. And also I'm really curious about this research. I'll look at that uh, later. Um, this year actually broke into full body highs for the first time. Mm. It's been on ongoing for weeks now. And, and I'm really curious now if, if maybe there's something on the horizon for like chronic hives maybe produced by hookworms. But I'll definitely keep an eye on that. Um, I wish we could keep talking about this topic. There's only a few minutes left. I feel like time has gone by too fast. I always ask my scientists on the show what they do outside of science and we don't have a whole lot of time for that answer but in the next five minutes tell me you know what do you what are your other passions outside of uh parasites and and micros you know microscope work and all that stuff <laughs> um well i try to uh you know stay healthy eat pretty healthy try to exercise usually some like weightlifting or um i really enjoy uh volleyball and racquetball so um it's good to have like a physical outlet as well um and then in my free time i love um reading like science fiction fantasy books if i am in the middle of a good one i don't want to watch tv or anything i like just want to read a book i'll be like sitting there eating lunch by myself sometimes my coworkers would be like you want to go to lunch and i'd be like and i would try to like casually duck out of it because really all i wanted to do was just like sit down and eat and read my book um so yeah, i do like, like my girlfriend my girlfriend that's that's all she wants to do she, she just wants to read we have our own routines on saturdays you know she reads in a corner and i do something else but that's a <laughs> uh, what is your favorite uh sci-fi book well my all-time favorite 
books are the Lord of the Rings. Like that's like comfort food for me. And I could go back and I used to read them almost every year. I don't reread them every year now, but, uh, they're like, I always have them on my Kindle. So, so I could always read those sci-fi. It's hard for me to choose. Um, you know, yeah, there's some that like delve into an area that's not like super science fictiony, but one that I often come back to is, is a book called the left hand of darkness. Um, it's, it was written in the sixties. It's by, I think her name is Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, and it's awesome. And it's not that sci-fi E. I mean, it's, it's kind of more about like gender roles. It, it, it's basically a guy in the future goes to this planet and he's going to ask them if they want to join this like federation of planets. Okay. So that sounds very sci-fi, but it has almost nothing to do with the story. The whole story is this guy's like an ambassador to this planet and all of the humans on this planet are, there's only one gender. They're like all hermaphrodites. And oh, I've heard of this. It's fantastic. I've it was written in the it. 60s. And if you read it now, you're like, was this written yesterday? Because it's all about like gender roles and how this guy is right. struggling. He's the only like fully gendered person there. And he's always struggling to like not project a male or female gender onto like everyone he meets. They're all kind of androgynous. And he is trying to sort that out. And they do have like relationships and like two people have a child. And so there's, yeah, it's pretty much all about gender roles. And so even though it's sci-fi, it's not like space travel and lasers. It's more like the introduction to the book gives it like, I read the intro and I was like, this is going to be good because it's a forward, like by the author. And the whole forward is like good science fiction and fantasy is just a thought experiment of what would our world be like if and a good science fiction or fantasy book will leave you feeling like you learned something, even if you can't exactly put your finger on what it is that you learned. And I have to say, like, I read this book and I feel like it did give me a very different perception of like gender and gender roles and the things that we project on to that. That's fascinating. And and what a great way to end the show, too. I mean, <laughs> it couldn't have ended even better. We talked about parasites, and we ended up on, on a really cool tidbit about good sci-fi. Um, so, Jimmy, thank you again for joining me. It's been, uh, it's been extremely educational and extremely fun, too. You're really, really good at explaining complicated things for people like me who are not scientists. So I really appreciate that. Thanks again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you.